what is happening with TikTok? It's the gift that keeps on giving. Trump also said publicly at a rally that he negotiated that ByteDance pay $5 billion um, into a fund to support education. And that was the moment when ByteDance found out that they committed to that. And then he started to think about it some more. Like, is it, is it lips, is, are they paying lip service for people like you and me um, who have this kind of like conscious about recycling and being better to the environment? Two billion, not a large number for Amazon, really not a large number. I don't want to hear more, more junk from brands saying that their goal by 2050 is to be carbon neutral. I don't know when customer service became such a, 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 a loathful experience. Hey everyone, and welcome to another weekly episode of the 30 Minute CMO, uh, our ad talk edition. I am joined by my partner, Alex McNamara. Hey, Alex. Good evening, Gosha. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Very good. I'm tired, but I'm very good. It's been an exhausting week and it's only Monday. It's only Monday. I know. It's only Monday. Well, we have quite a few things that we have in stock for you that we're going to discuss, um, kind of spanning the gamut. Uh, a little bit of news um, around uh, the TikTok acquisition. We also wanted to talk about Amazon's push into sustainable advertising, or at least the campaigns that they're putting in front of the consumers to, uh, telling their sustainability story. Uh, one of the other things that has really been interesting, especially as we've been shifting to more of this work from home culture, is uh, the compensation uh, narrative within the industry. How is that going to shake out uh, if people are going to be working remotely somewhere? So that's a topic that we'll touch on. And finally, we'd like to discuss the uh, aspect of customer service uh, that actually translates well to marketing. Is it marketing? Should it be under the remit of the marketing department and the CMO? It's something that we'll talk about uh, and debate. But to start us off, Alex, what is going on with TikTok, which is, I feel like, the same exact question I asked last week. Give us an update. The, what is happening with TikTok? It's the gift that keeps on giving. So TikTok was on, and then it was off, and then it was on again, and then it was off over the weekend, and now it's back on. But maybe we don't know what's happening because no one seems to be able to get their story straight. So it sounded like uh, Donald Trump was going to pull the plug on last Friday, he said he announced that he was going to pull the plug on TikTok. No new installs, no new updates on after Sunday. Same with WeChat. Uh, and then on Saturday, it sounded like they've reached a deal where no one was buying anything and they were partnering with uh, Oracle for data and Walmart for something. Um, and then as of today, um, it sounds like Donald Trump has said that uh, he what he approved in principle is now not approved because he doesn't want ByteDance retaining ownership of um, of TikTok and TikTok Global, the new entity that they're going to form. Um, but ByteDance has already said they're not going to sell anything to anyone else, especially their algorithm. So right now, uh, I don't know. Is the long answer of it? I don't know. 
reading the headlines right now on serious publications like the Financial Times, it is clear that this is a mess that is still very much in the making. Quoting from an article that just got published, Biden said on Monday that TikTok Global, this new um, this new entity, would be a 100% fully owned subsidiary. But later on on Monday, Oracle uh, said that ByteDance would have no ownership in TikTok Global and shares in the new entity will be distributed to their owners with Americans becoming the majority holders. As you said, Trump going on Fox News earlier today said, if we find out that they don't have total control, then we're not going to approve the deal. I feel like, I feel like the final the final uh, part of this play has yet to play out. I, I mean, it's, it's crazy like that, that no, everyone's trying to spin it. I read that um, TikTok was going to sell 20% or allow Oracle and Walmart to buy 20% each. So they would have 40% ownership of the new TikTok global. Then uh, because ByteDance is 40% um, owned by investors, which are Americans, that means that TikTok Global would have a eighty uh, percent ownership by non-Chinese companies, which the maths doesn't really map out for me. But let's say it does. Um, but then, like, what does that really mean? Because what? Because ByteDance is still a Chinese company and it's still in sixty percent of TikTok Global, and like the the Trump. I don't know. I don't know. This makes no sense. I still think we're waiting for what whoever wants to play the the next card in this crazy, crazy game of uh, of poker. Uh, I think that's what's gonna what's gonna push it. But I don't think Trump is gonna win this. I can't see how he is gonna win this. He is not a master negotiator. He is a master of nothing. It is interesting that on top of uh, on top of what we just described, this confusion. Let's call it that. Um, Trump also said publicly at a rally that he negotiated that ByteDance uh, or this new entity basically pay $5 billion um, into a fund to support education. Um, <laughs> and that was the moment when ByteDance found out that they committed to that. So they had no prior knowledge of this happening until it was announced at a rally. So interesting. He's either he's either excellent at negotiating and managed to get that through, or he did not do that and he's making things up. I don't know which to believe. I'm going to lean probably to the latter if I had to make a bet on it. I love that to explain this. The FT again has has to resort to making a chart that says the two sides of the TikTok deal. There are three columns there, and it says what Oracle and Walmart said what Biden said, <laughs> how can both sides make sense? I think if you have to make a chart to explain it, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. Um, I, make think, sense. I, think, I think the curious part for me is what, 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 what Walmart has in all of this. I think they were probably brought in um, to really be that blue chip American company that uh, no one has any questions about in terms of um, you know, their loyalties and affiliations. I know that they've been making a huge push into into digital for the last several years, and it's um, you know they're seeing themselves as a rising competitor to Amazon um, on the e-commerce side. I'm guessing it's a data play. I'm guessing they want to yeah. um, to push into that. Um, their previous efforts uh, with e-commerce and um, certain other things have not 
necessarily panned out as well, but um, they are on the ascendancy there. So I'm guessing they're just wanting to enrich what they already have about their consumers. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, switching over from TikTok and actually touching on Amazon for a brief few minutes. Um, not sure if our listeners have seen the recent push by Amazon into sustainable advertising, but Alex, want to want to give us a little bit of an of a preview, yeah. so, a recap of what they've been doing. For sure, I think we can probably put the links to the videos or the ads that we're going to talk about into one of the places that the podcast lives. Um, so. Basically, I was watching TV the other day, as as I do more and more during quarantine, um, and I saw these these a big push from Amazon into advertising their um, approach to sustainability and their promises to sustainability. Uh, the one that I remember a lot is that they're putting two billion into a climate fund. Um, and that's a very it, it, it's a very uh, COVID era ad where it feels like a bunch of stock footage with a quite an emotional VO. Um, one of, there's no VO. It's only um, copy on screen. And it basically says how much they're going to put into um, their climate fund of $2 billion. And then the other one that I remember was a guy uh, with a young kid talking about how he's so proud to be working with Amazon, um, how they're bringing the next you know, fleet of the Amazon delivery vehicles uh, to be fully electric um, and how he doesn't want to be the guy telling his kids he did nothing during a pivotal moment within the climate change uh, fight. So, you know, on the surface, I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. They clearly, you know, value it. And Amazon being, you know, one of the, one of, if not the biggest delivery network and logistics, you know, they're, they're pumping out, a lot of um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, delivering all of our stuff. You know, they, a lot of people are looking at them for that kind of, um, those kinds of issues. So for them to be putting this in like the $2 billion in, in the climate fund seems like a, a pretty big deal. And then you start to think about it some more. Like, is it, is it lips, is, are they paying lip service for people like you and me um, who have this kind of like, conscious about recycling and being better to the environment um, in order to get us just to continue to buy Amazon products. And, and they're basically paying to have our guilt removed so that we'll go in there or buy three packs of toothpaste, the next day delivery for 17 bucks and not worry about where it's come from, how it's getting to us, you know, all and all of that. Two billion seems like a lot of money, but when Jeff Bezos is 116 billion and like, consistently getting more and more money every day um that's not that's not actually that much for a company like amazon who also don't pay a lot of taxes like wouldn't if they're really in serious about it why don't they put more money into it why don't they put 10 billion why don't they put 20 why don't they just figure out what the you know a big number is in order to really make a difference and and invest that if they're that serious about it yeah, my, my first reaction when I saw that ad was um, actually a, a little bit revolting. Uh, I, I, felt, <laughs> I, 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 I felt like um, whoever was in charge of making this creative just didn't hit the right notes. Um, I feel like the environment is always the right issue to talk about. But right now, when there are so many stresses on society, you better, you better get it right because uh, in the... Uh, in this day and age, there is very little room for performative advertising. And this very, very much felt like 
performative advertising. You're right. Um, you know, what, uh, first of all, um, this climate fund, um, I don't want to spend too much of our marketing related podcast talking about the semantics of what goes into, uh, into these types of initiatives, but a lot of them, if they're not done genuinely and from the heart, they're done for PR purposes. And if they're done for PR purposes, they're fair game for us to, to discuss and debate. This one feels like it's, it's done purely for PR purposes. Two billion, not a large number for Amazon, really not a large number. What they're planning on doing with this climate fund too, you know, the devil's in the details. I went and actually read through their press release. They're looking to fund emerging technologies that are going to solve the, or going to tackle the, the issue of climate change which to me sort of doesn't feel like that's where the biggest impact is. Um, yeah. There's already technology out there, I think, that um, can receive an, an additional boost, additional funding. Um, focusing on emerging tech, focusing on more startups, doing it through grants and things like this can be a component of a climate fund. But it doesn't feel like, I don't feel like this is the core. You know, when I hear Google and Microsoft saying they're going to be carbon negative um, at a fairly aggressive, within a fairly aggressive timetable. That feels more real because they're saying, here's how much greenhouse gases we're responsible for. Being carbon neutral uh, is um, actually not a great place to be because we're basically saying we're going to be at a bad place, which is where we are right now. We need to be carbon negative. Amazon is not doing that. The other thing that is really making me roll my eyes at this, do you know, I mean, you know, Amazon's founder, Bezos, has a space company. Not personally, but yes. Blue Origin. Yep. And a quote from a couple of years ago really sticks with me. It's actually from May of 2018. He was being interviewed um, by a business publication in Germany. And I guess he was being asked, um, what he's doing with all of his money. And he, the direct quote is, the only way that I can see to deploy, deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That is basically it. Wow. So that, that is what he truly cares about. And it's not climate, right? He is putting, no. by the latest estimates, $1 billion a year into Blue Origin. So every two years, he's spending the equivalent of what this one fund is aiming to do um, in terms of cleaning up essentially the mess that he's, he's, um, he's putting in on the other side. That's why it seems performative. I don't think he's yeah. genuine. I don't think Amazon is genuine about this. And I think this is just another way to take some more money and essentially just burn it on half, you know, half-assed PR. Yeah, 100%. I 100% agree with that. It, it, but yeah, I mean... They, they're not putting enough money into a climate fund. They've got way more money than, than that. I mean, I, I, I get that their private companies um, are investigating into um, investing and investigating space travel because you know, NASA has got cut funding and they're not able to, to do all of the things. But if, if you're going to be putting out sustainable advertising and trying to make your company look good, like really do it or have your leaders talk about it have them really care about it because otherwise you know it it really does feel like they're just trying to buy off on uh, on our pay off our guilt so we continue buying with them i mean if if they didn't do anything i probably wouldn't even have thought about it as much as i am right now 
Um, so they're just trying to put out media for PR and have something to talk about um, because it's a box to check on the marketing budget or the PR plan. Yeah, and and one that clearly is falling, um, falling short of the, what their aspirations, are, and rightly so, because um, because they're not they're not doing enough. Um, I guess my question off the back of this to you is, who is doing this well? You know, there are some you know there are some easy ones, obviously, like Patagonia. You know, they're you know Ben and Jerry's, but really, who do you think is doing um, sustainability marketing well, um, in your opinion? I don't know. And I think that might be a problem. I I genuinely can't other than like the 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 real um like the Patagonias who make a real like who make that part of core of their brand messaging, um, you know, what they said about the not not providing the 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 vests to companies that don't align with their brand vision for for climate change. You know, that's that's the core of of the founders and and the, that exec leadership. They really believe that they care about it. Is it Patagonia or someone else in the label? You know the labels you get in the back of your your jackets, uh, where it has the the brand. Uh, on the flip of that, it said "Vote the assholes out." Yeah, like Patagonia. they really care. It was Patagonia, yeah. They really care. Like that's that that you know, vote for someone who believes in climate change. So like that that is a great example of it. But I think that it's not, especially in all of the startups that are, you know, that are coming out now, it's not in their DNA to, to think about climate change as a top priority and how they impact the climate with, um, with what they're producing. Uh, you know, clothing manufacturers, you know, Stitch Fix, I don't, they don't, they don't do a lot about it. They don't talk about a lot about it. They probably have CSR. They probably have some you know, white paper that says they're, carbon neutral or their six step plan to becoming carbon neutral or how they you know, have a lot of you know, great um, sustainable practices to get their, um, to get their uh, clothing made, but we don't know about it. And I feel like this, this could it's, be, it's, inc- you know, it's incredibly hard having, having gotten kind of firsthand experience in, 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 in seeing what it takes to become carbon neutral or carbon negative for, um, a consumer packaged goods company, it is, you know, you start thinking that it might be as simple as making some choices about um, about the type of packaging you're going to use, where it's going to be sourced, et cetera, et cetera. And you very quickly run into um, highly complex issues around shipping logistics um, that even if you set the cost differential aside, uh, makes it very, very difficult to, to make that change. So I, there are companies that are willing to commit to this B Corp you know, be corporations who kind of put it in their charter to uh, to do good for the environment and deprioritize profit maybe can 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 swing this. But in general, I think it's hard for companies. I'll tell you who I think does do it well. Who? Um, I think Volvo does this well. And I was um, I was uh, reading um, something from uh, from Volvo, where um, it was an article about their newest line of cars. They're these sort of supercars that they're making called Polestar. Um, their Polestar. Division, oh yeah, right? yeah. So they're mm-hmm. coming out with Polestar One, which is like this insanely pricey um, coupe, hundred fifty thousand is the starting price. But their next wow. car, Polestar Two, is meant to compete with the Tesla Y, 
or the Tesla X, and it starts at like 59,000. So actually a lot more affordable. Mm -hmm. What they're yeah. saying is all of these electric vehicle manufacturers are actually not reporting transparently the environmental impact at the point of manufacturing. They're only telling you how clean the car is going to be at the gas pump. What they're going yeah. to do is include all of that information when you're looking to buy their car. They're going to make the entire supply chain transparent and tell you what the cost of the environment was in producing the car. Volvo can trade on that because Volvo is Swedish. Sweden is associated with progressive thinking on um, climate. And um, yeah. Volvo has historically put some things um, ahead of profit, um, such as safety. And so I think for them, they're basically just taking this legacy and they're seeing like, what is that next frontier? And do they have the right to speak about it? And they, and they feel like they do, and they are. And I think it's brave of them. Um, and yeah, they're a fairly small car brand, but they're an example of someone who is, I think, um, doing the right thing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think, I think that's a very good, good point um, that you make about, do they have the right to talk about it? Do they, ha do they have the legacy or do they have the, the, the brand where if they talk about it, it's, it, it is real or it feels real, it feels genuine. And I think that a lot of people um, don't, don't have that, but they can, they, can, they can own it if they want to own it. They can make changes um, through their business practices in order to then be able to talk about it genuinely. And I think what you were saying about people want to do it, but um, logistically, it makes doing business very hard. Um, and I'm not going to say that you're not doing a good job on it, but it's, you know, it's not a principle until it costs you money. Uh, quote springs to mind where, you know, people try and do it. And it's like, well, uh, it's, it's a bit, it's just like, well, it's just a hassle. And you know, maybe we'll do it in something else, but we need to make sure that we don't hit, hit the profits. We need to make sure it doesn't, you know, create blockages. But I think, you know, what you guys are doing, um, has has been great. I think like people and brands and companies, if they care about it, um, can find you know they may not be able to do all of it at at once, but progressively be able to to achieve it. And I may be talking absolute nonsense, but that's my that's that that's what I think. I think I think to draw a conclusion on this is a company should only speak about um, its environmental efforts once it has done something you know, substantive, like do, do work first on this topic and then tell us, yeah. you know, if it's, uh, if it's, it's, if, if it's, if it's been good work, I don't want to hear more, more junk from brands saying that their goal by 2050 is to be carbon neutral airlines. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, the, the West coast is burning. Like we, we, you know, the, the change is now. And so, you know, unless, unless you've been putting some real thought into this for a decade and been putting some practices in to address the issues that your business is creating. Like no one asked Amazon to create two day shipping, right? Like they just got us yeah. all hooked on it. Okay. You know, you buy a fleet of planes, you buy a fleet, insane fleet of delivery vans, you know, your carbon footprint is, you know, of your own making, like yeah. fix it first yes. and then tell us yeah. about it. Don't tell us that you're planning on doing it. Yeah, I think I think that's a problem in in almost like everyday life. People just tell you what they're going to do and then don't do it. That's like a very well. I mean, that's what Trump did. Way you know, has always been doing, but it's it's like do the thing 
and then tell people you've done it and how it, how you're going to do it. Don't be like, anyone can go around and be like, yeah, we're going to do this by 2050. And in a couple of years, everyone forgets there's a change of management and then that gets scrapped. And it was just a big PR stunt at the time when they needed, they needed a, a boost because something else negative was happening. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, speaking of, of employees at companies uh, in marketing, like my segue there. Yes. Um, Beautiful. <laughs> smooth. Um, salaries um, and in the remote world. Um, I was thinking about this the other day and, and, I, and I don't, I guess preface this with, I don't have an answer to this. And it, it, for me, it's a very interesting sort of debate to have. Um, the, the, the high cost of living cities where, you know, we live I, in, in LA and New York and San Francisco, especially um, salaries are higher than average because of uh, the cost of living. And in order to get people to want to work at your company, you're going to pay them a, a higher wage, entice them in with, with, uh, with the money uh, and enough money that they can live there. San Francisco, if you earn less than $90,000 a year, you're, in, you're technically in, in, the, uh, in poverty in San Francisco, insane. which is insane. So you, you pay more people, you pay more for, to have people and to, to be able to pick the best of the best within that city. So if you don't live in those um, high, high cost of living cities, you're in uh, you know, other cities in the US, there are many to name, but you, you'll have a, a lower average because it doesn't cost you as much to buy a house. It doesn't cost you as much to, to go out grocery shopping and et cetera. But if you're all working remote, will you'll, you, know, you everyone may move out to, to cities where the cost of living isn't as high, but you get more space when you, you get an outside space, which is at a premium right now. But then do you get a pay cut because you don't live in the city? Does the employer, you know, give you banding? And if you pick to live in a city that, you know, is, is lower cost, you earn less money than someone else who is like you. Um, at the same level who chooses to stay in, in the, the high cost adjustment. Of the city. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then, then if we're working remote, suddenly Google's and Facebook's and WPP's and Dentsu's, they can go shopping throughout the whole of the U S for their staff so that you're able to suddenly you can tap into all of these markets where you have really bright people who don't need to be in the office all the time, some travel required, and then do your standards remain the same or go up um, if you have a bigger pool of people fishing. And then suddenly all of the big companies are competing with the same smart people in these different cities, um, which I didn't have access to before. So do the salaries go up? Do they go down? Do they stay the same? It's interesting. What do you think? It's interesting. You know, I just to add to this, um, we know that some some of these tech giants like Google uh, also use some of their fringe benefits. Well, I guess they're not that fringe, but the um, the free meals, the the yeah. daycares, and all of these things, right? That help them attract the talent and maybe not necessarily be at the top of the pay range, right? Um, yeah. So how do you maintain that uh, allure when you're not able to offer? all of these things that come part of a big swanky yeah. office. So 
I think that'll be interesting because it actually might start putting companies that don't offer that at a more of a level playing field, because if no one is offering it to remote employees, then what are you competing on really? Are you yeah. competing on salaries alone? Are you competing on um, flexibility, four-day work weeks? Um, what is it? So if, strictly speaking, talking about salaries, you know, I think there are probably going to be some cost of living adjustments factored into whatever city you decide to base yourself in, and you probably have to declare this. I believe Twitter, in announcing their policy for remote work forever, which, by the way, doesn't mean that everyone is forever remote working. It means that you will forever have an option to work remotely if you choose yeah. to. But I believe that they, um, in in there, put in the the indexing, I guess, the whatever it is, the salary banding by city. I think, I, I think so. I mean, you know, first of all, I think uh, it doesn't make sense to pay people San Francisco or New York or LA salaries if they're living in Nashville or, you know, Omaha. Um, yeah. It's probably a good thing for Nashville and Omaha if that doesn't happen either because you don't want a bunch of people making, you know, mid six digits, um, yeah. you know, destroying your city because they're making a ton of money and the rest of the people can't compete so that's yeah. probably a responsible thing to do although I, don't, I doubt that anyone cares about that um but i'm i'm really interested in kind of like what is what are the other things um that can be offered in order to differentiate a google from a twitter from a wpp from someone else um and if it's not the office if it's not the physical working space is it access to WeWorks? Is it access to, like, do they start providing certain things that make like tiny little micro hubs in, in each mm -hmm. city happen? Like if you want to go and meet other Twitter folk in, you know, Bend, Oregon, is there one place that Twitter provides you access to that you go and meet those people in and have some sort of camaraderie? Like, I, you know, what do you think? I mean, I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really important thing to think about when it comes to company culture. Um, because if you're going to be looking at hiring people, uh, you know, remotely, um, how do you keep that company culture if you're not able to all be in the same place and have those like relationship building moments where you, you know, a team of people goes out and goes and gets lunch together, not like as a team lunch, but just like walks to wherever you go and get lunch and, and hang out over lunch and, and chat. Um, and then, um, I lost my train of thought there, but yeah. That's in, term, what we, but in, in terms of the other benefits, I guess. Yes. In terms of the other benefits. Yes. Thank you for getting me back on track. So in, in for this, I did a little research on, on LinkedIn and you, in looking at all of the jobs that are remote and a lot of the ones that you traditionally would have had the free lunches, the, you know, we're very you know, casual, casual clothes. We have snack things filled, all that kind of stuff. That was all still there. Um, mm. and it just felt like that, well, the HR was lazy, uh, when it came to reposting their job that they'd been on for a while. Um, but also like what, but that's not like a real benefit. We kind of, we kind of got caught up in this in like having lunch or having Coke and snack in your, in your office was like a benefit and wanted to make you work there when it's really not, you can go buy your own stuff at Costco and bring it in and it's going to be about the same amount of cost. So like when you're at home, like what is it that's going to drive you? Like right now, I, I imagine um, benefits for daycare would be huge for anyone 
um, wanting to to join a company, if you're at a at same salary as another a competitor, you say, well, we'll you know, we have a deal with the daycare in your area. We can, you know, we we won't even have to charge you. They won't even charge you. We'll just cover it for you, and you just drop your kids off there or your kid off. Um, I think anything to help you with a remote remote workplace and help you build out what feels like an office um, will, will be important. So you're not trying to like figure it out and have, you know, like my, my table now is a little janky, but still, um, but it's like the, yeah, like those kinds of things. And I think what you said about bringing people together, um, if you're having hubs in cities, I think is also a great idea so that you can have people um, come together who are all working remote can all be in the same place um but not required to be so yeah, yeah. I, I i read i i read about like food stipends that companies are offering in lieu of catered lunches um i also know that some companies are thinking very differently about what constitutes a benefit and one of the things that um you just mentioned daycare and child care and you know baby care um some are investing as a benefit into products like um these smart bassinets like the snoo which yeah call me your baby and they provide it as a corporate benefit um snap does a bunch of others do um and i think that's important i think i think on the balance if people see that a company is being, being creative about the kinds of benefits that it's offering uh they may forego a higher salary and actually go yeah. to a company that's uh, that's offering that and so i think for for advertising agencies and for 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 kind of like the that part of the industry um the tri- these agencies, the agencies they traditionally rely on a more standard sort of benefits model. I think the benefits are really good generally, uh, but I think it'll be time to uh, think through what a remote benefit package looks like versus one where people are uh, working from um, a standard office. Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, segueing a little bit, uh, still keeping it on the marketing uh, angle, but. A topic that I wanted to get your perspective on uh, and discuss a little bit is uh, whether customer service is an extension of marketing. Um, the reason that this is such a such an interesting topic for me is because actually in, in my role, I, I, I inherited customer service as an extension of marketing and I can genu- genuinely see the benefits of that alignment. Uh, although I think traditionally it has been seen as an operations um, kind of a backhand operation sort of thing. I think of customer service um, as um, something I don't really want to deal with gen- generally, right? Like I have a problem, I pick up the phone, I'm expecting wait line, you know, wait times, I'm expecting someone who doesn't really care about my issue. I'm expecting, I'm, I'm gearing up for a, for, for a battle a little bit. Yeah, you wanna, you're gonna have a fight with someone. I'm gonna have a fight with someone, I'm gonna have to hold my ground, yeah. But it, when that doesn't happen, when you call a customer service line or you go on chat and do that on chat and they are actually pleasant and they actually take the time to listen to you and they're not rushing you and they're being thoughtful in the solutions they're giving you and they're meeting and or exceeding um, your expectations, that stops being a solutions thing. It stops being about them solving a problem you have and it starts being about customer retention, increased loyalty. Um, this whole like life cycle marketing, right? Like it's mm-hmm. um, it's it's my my lifetime value all of a sudden increases tenfold. 
And I think a company that has built a business on this is American Express, because it's one of the things that people know about Amex. Look, it's a card that's not accepted in as many places as the <laughs> card. Like, let's start with that, right? Like, if you want to go to Europe, you're not taking your Amex luck. as the only card you're taking with you. Um, and it carries fees more, more often than not, right? But it has this customer service and people just swear by it. And it's been a consistent thing for the entire existence of this company, right? So people get an Amex and they never let go of an Amex. Um, and I wanted to ask you, like, what, I mean, as, as someone who um, works on the strategy side, um, you know, with brands, how often do conversations come up um, around customer care and an extension of retention, preventing churn, that sort of thing? Uh, I, I think never is, is the right answer to that. Um, but I don't, I don't know when customer service became such a, a, a loathful experience. I don't know if it was invented to be the same, to, to be that. I don't know if, if it was to customer service was such an appalling um, department to deal with that people would refuse to call them to get refunds, refuse to call them to try. Have you tried canceling a Sky subscription? They have a, 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 a script. I mean, it's probably the same in other ones, but the script, it just takes you in circles. Well, do you want to cancel? Yes, I want to cancel. Well, have you tried this package? I don't want it. Well, what if I give you a discount? Why well, don't want it? Or I'm going to have to transfer you to someone else to authorize this. And you get, you get bumped around. And suddenly it's three hours later, uh, you still haven't canceled your subscription. And then you just hang up being like, well, fine, I'll just do it next month. So I'll just have more Sky. I'll just have more, I'll just have more Sky. And, and then that, that, that's it. I'm a Sky customer for life now. So lifetime value in a, in a bad way. But, but, but yes, I think customer service is absolutely, if it's on the phone, I mean, the, the, the chatbots, I think, were brilliant. And having, well, chatbots and real people, depending on how far you get in with a, with a chatbot. Um, but they're brilliant because they allow you to figure it out at like kind of your own pace without having to talk to anyone, um, which is awesome. But also, if you have a really good experience with someone, uh, and especially a real person, like I think Chase customer service is excellent. I think Mr. Porter covers customer service is excellent. Um, American Discount Tire in-person customer service is excellent. Like, and I and I will be loyal to the brands that treat me well and help me figure out my problem. I had a really bad experience with Hilton, which I think we covered on a podcast, where it took me six months, five months to get a refund on a one night stay in a hotel in, in the UK. And the email I got from them, when I'd spoken to someone who approved everything, who said they'd send it out, the email I got basically said, we haven't listened to anything that you said in our last call. Please provide us with all of the details, send us some more details, send us your credit card statement that proves the cost, and then we'll issue the refund. And I was like, come on, this is absurd. And if you hadn't got me into Hilton, I 100% would have left them by now. Uh, well, traveling, so it doesn't really matter. I'm not spending any money there anyway. But customer service should fall under the, 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 you know, the brand vertical because the, you're getting so much exposure to your brand. And if, they, if your customers feel like they're not worth your time, they feel dissatisfied by it, they're probably not going to buy a product again. And they're probably just going to leave through the back door and you'll never know. 
you'll still send them emails, you'll still put them into your marketing lists, um, and you'll never know why. So if you don't, and I, you're, you're, we're getting like hands-on CMO experience right here. I feel privileged to, to be able to chat this with you. But I, in your company, how have you dealt with customers? Have you looked at the scripts that they have? Have you looked at the satisf- satisf- satisfaction reports that I'm sure come out monthly? And have you helped influence how they're trained, who, like what types of people are being hired, what the script is in order to try and retain someone and, and flip it from, you know, I feel like sometimes I call them and they're like, I'm wasting their time by calling them when they're just wasting my time by having me on the phone and getting me very pissed off. You know, I'll, um, I think one thing you, uh, that is really something that customer care departments should really take a look at is if you're making your customers go, go through a bunch of automated prompts to input their information, like phone number and you know, membership number and all of that. And the first thing your customer service agent asks when they pick up the phone finally is about those same things. That, oh. that, that shouldn't exist. 2020 no. should not exist. You know, either you wasted my time or you didn't build enough integrations in your system to flash that for your customer service agent. But to answer your question, um, look, you know, I think, I think customer care differs by industry. Um, the industry that um, we're in, that I work in, is a high touch, you know, fairly upmarket one. And so it has to provide an elevated customer service. Um, it's as much about problem solving as it is about recommendations um, because that's what people call us for. So think Net-A-Porter, right? Or Mr. Mm-hmm. Porter. People will not just call to ask where their packages are. They might also call and ask about recommendations. And, you know, I bought this and what might match that. Um, so it's, a, it's more of a consultative thing, but the philosophy behind it is the customer is at the center of any conversation. And if you have to figure out how to resolve an issue, think about it from the standpoint of what would make the customer satisfied first, and only after that, think about whether the company's short-term loss or gain is needed to be factored into it, right? So that is, I think, what's transformative about customer care when you think, when you align it with marketing. Um, I, having kind of control of both, uh, realize that for me to Acquire that customer through all of my marketing channels is infinitely more expensive and hard than to, in the moment of their frustration, to surprise and delight them and retain them. And yes, it might cost me some money, but it might cost me some money with a higher guarantee of that person becoming a much more loyal long-term customer. And so that's, I think, I think the value, the kind of like the value chain there is very seamless for me. And that's why I kind of brought this question up for you. Why are more companies not seeing customer care? you know, as part of their overall marketing efforts. I think, I think it should be. Yeah. I mean, as, as a retention strategy, it's probably one of the most important. I think, you know, when you, when you get on the phone to someone and I, I dread this, especially with the telco companies, uh, when you try and ask them for, you know, advice on something, their immediate, their immediate response is to go for the most expensive thing that will cost you the most money. And, you know, you don't feel like they even care about what you're saying and what you do um, and what you need it for. Um, and there's obviously exceptions. I've dealt with some really great people who have advised me pretty well on, on those types of things. But, you know, 
if if the people who are helping you like it sounds like what you you're building um in terms of like calling for advice you know calling for i like the product what else can i have and your immediate response is not the most expensive thing that we sell you know you're you're going to immediately buy um credibility in whatever the response is and if you can actually help them and be able to overcome them it may it may cost you 50 bucks i don't know 50 bucks on the call but over you know if they are happy with the experience and they go in and then go in three more times when if they were not happy they could have abandoned entirely short term you know cost long term gain especially if you're really tying that brand message through like if you're saying you care about your customers and let's say you, know, you care about your customers you care about what they how they feel through your brand and you help them feel good about themselves and then you don't take that all the way through to right you know customer service then it feels false but if you can if your customer service person cares as much as the ceo does about making you feel better then you really feel you know the love for the brand and the love from the brand there's a you mentioned Selco's, and actually there's a great example of a company that that put this in you know, at the, you know, as their mission statement, you know, we take care of customers and T-Mobile is that company. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been with every service, but um, I've I've been with T-Mobile for the last few years and they they pay off. They they pay that promise off so well. Um, And again, I don't talk to their customer service frequently, but I remember that experience where they, um, first of all, I saw a tweet from their CEO, former CEO, uh, saying that you know we're reimagining our customer service to be more around like product specialists that are going to be dedicated to you. So if you call us, you know whoever takes the call, there will be a support system in place to help them um, figure out a solution. And I remember having an issue, and I remember calling, and the guy took his time, listened, was thoughtful, introduced me even without like bringing those people onto the call, but said to me, "Who are going to be the other people who will be helping me?" And they solved my problem over a period of a few days. And that was amazing. Like that was, um, that was really an example of, you know, the promise being kind of lived through uh, for the experience. And so, you know, is it the best telco out there? No, but do I want to stay with them? Because among other things, I know that the customer service there is not frustrating and is actually quite good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would, I, you, you know, you, you would pay money to have good customer service. And I think, you know, it's, it's the, the the cost of your the sacrifices you're making to stay with T-Mobile for you are infinitely um, better because of their customer service when you have to deal with them uh, and occasionally get spotty coverage. Um, yeah, yeah. When I'm in a dead zone and I can't make that that phone call back, but but when I do, their customer care is going do, to be lovely. Customer care is going to be great. You'll come away feeling awesome about it. Um, but do you do you think that it's the and I haven't worked in cust- in customer service or have being a part of that team but I, sometimes the way i get you get treated it feels like their kpi their goals are help as many people help as in the in the loosest way possible help as many people as possible per hour so short calls as fast as get them get them off the line as fast as possible so you can help someone else reduce wait times um do you think that the changing of that kpi to be help um like customer care being the core value of the brand is almost like uh, help at all costs 
you know, loosely again, help at all costs, but really care about how you're helping someone to make sure that at the end of it, they, they feel like they've you've solved their problem. And like that, tr- that sort of change in direction from, uh, from the goals. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, it's, it, it should be common metrics for, uh, for the organization. I think NPS, the net promoter score seems to be one of those simple, simple metrics that everyone can, you know, it's simple and it's complex and it's what you do with it rather than what it's, what it says. But, um, you know, if, if you make the NPS score, um, a thing that your customer service sort of orients itself around, I think you're going to start giving agents more time and more agency to actually solve the problem because there is no way a customer is going to give a high score if the problem, you know, wasn't solved to their satisfaction. And if they're, you know, if the rest of the company is then dragged down by that score uh, and everyone's performance bonuses at the C level or exec level are affected by a lower score, I think you can imagine that changes will be made and, you know, problems will go uh, will not go unaddressed. So um, that seems to be one of those that um, that allows companies to to do a better job on the customer care side. And again, you know, just I think putting the customer first, um, long term is a better strategy than putting short term gains first. And um, that's what I'm learning, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we're kind of agreeing, both agreeing on. Yeah, yeah, I 100 on on board with that as a marketer and as a customer. Aren't aren't we both? Um, Alex, <laughs> I think this, uh, wraps up this edition of our show. Uh, yep. we once again have a lot more topics to discuss next time around. Yep. Thanks. Uh, thanks for a great conversation. Thanks, Gosha. Appreciate it. Um, that was very fun. Anyone else listening, throw us topics or questions or feedback on uh, the topics that we have. would love to keep the discussion going. Um, and until next time. That's right. Until next time. Bye. Until next time. Bye.